reading Genesis 6, starting verse 5. Genesis 6, verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make in the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, whose lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. You may be seated. The account of Noah's Ark is an account that has intrigued people for centuries. Many cultures, many places around the world people are somewhat familiar with this story. Often it's one of the first Bible stories that our children become familiar with. And even people who know very little about the Bible know something about this account. They're aware of it, even if they know very little about the details and some of the implications of the account. And this morning I'd like to look at some of those implications. Some of the applications of this account of Noah and the flood. You see, many of the Old Testament stories, the accounts that we find in the Old Testament, are so rich in applications that are explained and developed in the New Testament. And as we read the Old Testament, and as the Old Testament saints encountered these, these events, they were given a window 
through which they could look and see what was going to be fulfilled in the New Testament, get a glimpse of that which is to come. And when we see these stories fulfilled in the New Testament, we can look back in the Old Testament and say, that just makes so much sense because these things just fit together so beautifully. And the account of Noah's Ark is certainly an example of one of those events. The Ark of Salvation is the title of the message this morning. <coughs> and the points of the uh, outline I'm using are somewhat linear in that to just simply follow through the chronology of this story, following the progression of events through the account. And we're actually going to go through the points two times. The first time, we'll be looking at the actual event. What happened in this situation? Reviewing the event as recorded in Scripture, looking at a few of the details. And then we want to come back and look at each of these points again and this time we'll be looking at some of the New Testament teaching that corresponds with these observations and making application for us today. And there's three things that I'd like to emphasize in this sermon, three things that I'd like you to notice, three things that you can be watching for as we progress through this uh, situation here. The one, first of all, is our need for salvation. There is a need for salvation. Secondly, is God's provision to meet that need. And then thirdly, is the consequences of our response to God's provision. We have a need, God made a provision for that need, and then our response to God's provision has some specific consequences. So first of all, let's go through this account. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis 6, 7, perhaps 8, 9, 10. Make a few comments from some of these chapters and just look at what happened here before we come back through and make some applications. First of all, I notice is that the outlook of the day was downright dismal. There wasn't a lot positive written about the society of that time. And I'd just like to point out a few observations in some of these verses. In verse 5, it says, The wickedness of man was great. It doesn't simply say they were wicked. It says their wickedness was great. Well, just how great was it? Farther on in the same verse, it says, Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that statement for a bit. I'd like you to especially notice the defining words in that statement that really bring out some emphasis. It's not only talking about the imaginations of his hearts. It says every imagination, not some imaginations, not most of them, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Doesn't sound very good, does it? They were living in dire times. It doesn't leave much room for anything good. How much good was there? You look at that statement and you have to ask the question, was there any good? Furthermore, down in verse 11, it tells us that the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Now, if something is full of violence, how much space for good is there? Very little. The, down, the, the outlook was downright dismal. And as God looked at this and he saw this wickedness, he saw these evil imaginations, he saw that the earth was filled with violence. 
Verse 6 tells us that his heart was grieved. It repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart, at the core of his being. God was grieved with what he saw. And then verse 7, destruction was imminent. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and a creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. This destruction was already determined. It was on its way. You see, evil is never without consequence. Evil is always, always comes with a consequence. We see this at the very beginning of the Bible. You look back at Genesis chapter 3. When Eve and Adam chose to disobey God, there were consequences. They were driven out of the garden. There would be death. There were consequences. We see it at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. As you read about the people who refused to acknowledge God for who he was, refused to worship him, there are consequences that they will face. So we see it in the beginning of the Bible. We see it in the end of the Bible. And we see it all the way in between, throughout the Bible. You look at the Old Testament. You look at the book of Exodus. People who refuse to follow God. The, the uh, spies came back with the report. The people rebelled against God's will. There were consequences. You look at the book of Judges. When everyone did that which was right in their own eyes, there were consequences. They were taken into captivity until they repented. Throughout the books of kings, the kings who obeyed not God, there were consequences. It's taught in the New Testament, Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death. There are consequences to evil. We need to realize that. When we choose to go against God, there are consequences. In Galatians chapter 5, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. There are consequences for what we do. And in this setting, in the time of Noah, the earth was full of evil. Destruction was coming. That point was not negotiable. Destruction was on its way. Furthermore, the destruction would not be escapable. Apart from the grace of God, there was no way anyone was going to escape from that judgment. So the first observation I see here is the outlook of the day was a dismal outlook indeed. Second observation, the grace of God saw the need of Noah. Verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is a God of grace. That's very simple for me to say. It's pretty difficult for me to comprehend it's pretty difficult for any of us can, to really understand the grace of God. This verse, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, is at the core of this whole account. If it were not for this verse, we probably wouldn't even have this account recorded. If it were not for this verse, there would be no continuing history of Adam's race. It was the grace of God that caused him to respond to the need of Noah. A couple weeks ago, I asked the question, where is God when it hurts? The grace of God is there. I stand here to tell you, he is a God of grace. And what we see in this passage, 
the God of grace. God is a God of grace. And we see the coming judgment and the grace of God on a collision course. This collision, this, this judgment of God was coming and it was descending upon these people. But at the same time, you had the grace of God that was coming. And the judgment of God and the grace of God were headed for the same point. What was going to happen when they meet? They were on a collision course. Now, when you know a collision is about to happen, it gets your attention. You perk up and you wait to see what's happening. What's going to happen? What's the results? What will the outcome be? When two powerful teams meet, whatever it is, everyone's interested, everyone's involved. What's the outcome going to be? Everyone wants to see. What is going to happen when the judgment and the grace of God meet? The grace of God is greater than the judgment of God. You see, the judgment of God was coming, but the grace of God just simply got a hold of Noah and lifted him above that judgment. The judgment of God was swallowed up by the grace of God. God's grace lifted him above. Yes, the judgment of God is real. And in your power, in your strength, the judgment of God is unavoidable, inescapable. That is why we need the grace of God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Again, that verse and the significance of that verse is really hard for us to grasp in its significance as we try to let it sink in. So the outlook of the day was dismal, but the grace of God saw the need of Noah. And third observation is the ark was God's precisely designed answer to Noah's need. You know, the ark was not something that just happened to be there when they needed it. Noah was not out journeying through the land and happened to stumble across the ark one day. Well, look at this. I think I might be able to make use of this. Might come in handy someday. I'll have to remember this is here. No, it was not a coincidence. It was something that was precisely and specifically designed by God for a very intent purpose. It was custom designed to escape the coming judgment. And I'm just going to mention a few of those specifics, beginning in verse 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Now, I'm not exactly sure what gopher wood is. As far as I know, I've not ever cut firewood out of gopher wood. Some people speculate that it might have been cypress wood. Um, a number of years ago, one of my relatives moved down south to South Carolina. There were lots of cypress trees growing. And he learned that a lot of people use cypress wood for fence posts. He said, you put them in the ground, they don't rot. They're very resistant. So maybe it was cypress. I don't know. But God had an intent, purpose. He chose gopher wood. He said, rooms you should make in the ark. You should pitch it within and without with pitch. We understand the, the purpose for all this. And God gave very specific dimensions. How long the ark was to be, how wide it was to be, and how high it was to be. And I find it interesting that many of the ships of today are built in very similar proportions to what the ark was built. That was not always the case. As people began building ships centuries ago, they did not follow this pattern initially. And they learned through trial and error, and a lot of error. And there were many years of difficult experiences. 
But as they experimented and they kind of settled on what worked best, people observed that the proportions were very similar to what the arc was. You see, these proportions were optimal for a number of reasons. It gave it optimal stability. If this arc would have been taller, it would not have been near stable. It would have um, toppled over a lot more quickly. If it would have been shorter in height, it would not have had near the strength lengthwise. And with the rooms that were built in the ark, it kind of gave the ark a honeycomb design, adding to the stability and to the strength. And of course, if the ark would have been too long as it heaved upon the, the storms, it would have been more subject to stress and strain that could have caused it to break. I think it was optimal for comfort, the rooms that were built within, sufficient space for everyone. There was a window along the top for light, ventilation. There was a door. And there were three floors. And I find that interesting that it had three floors. At one point, I just figured it had three floors because they needed it for space. But I wonder if there may not have been another reason for that. Many years ago, when I enjoyed playing with Legos, I discovered that if I build something with two layers of Legos, it's just not very stable, just a little bit of stress. And that comes across, comes apart pretty quickly. I learned that three layers of Legos, you can put a lot of strain and a lot of stress on that. And it just resists a lot more. And I'm thinking the three floors in that arc, as they were tied together, served a lot of the same purpose to give that arc the stability and the strength that it needed. You see, this arc was something that was designed with precision to meet a specific need, the need of that day. God designed something for us as well, which we'll talk about a bit later. Let's look at the next observation. Some of the points here I mentioned. Entrance into the ark was based on God's invitation. Chapter 6, verse 17, God said, Behold, I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. Every living thing that is in the earth shall die, but with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And in chapter 7, verse 1, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come. I think that's beautiful. Come. Come. God didn't say to Noah, go, get into that ark. God did not physically pick him up and put him into the ark. He did not send him someplace where he wasn't. But he invited him into his presence. He was there and he said, come. God was already there. He was drawing Noah to himself. And it's interesting that not everyone was invited into the ark. Entrance into the ark was based on invitation. It was not um, free-for-all. Entrance into the ark was based on God's invitation. Furthermore, there was only one door to the ark. The door of the ark thou shalt set in the side thereof. Verse 16 of chapter 6. You see, this door was 
the only access into the ark. There really was no other way into the ark. This was not a multiple choice situation where God said, well, if you like this approach, you take this approach. If you don't like that approach, here's another option. If that doesn't suit your fancy, you can try this. There was one door. There was one way. This was the way that God provided. This was the way through which Noah had to enter if he was going to enter. Yes, he had options. The options were two. Either he could enter through the door or he could remain outside and face the doom. For Noah and for the entire world, it was either the door or the doom. That was their choice. Furthermore, everyone inside the ark was saved. Everyone outside was lost. I'm going to read chapter 7, verse 23. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. Those inside were saved, those outside were lost. It's as simple as that. That's not too hard to understand. It was black and white. There was no kind of being saved. There was no somewhat saved, partly saved, maybe saved, not really saved. No middle ground. Either they were in or they were out. They were saved or they were lost. Not too much question about that. Another observation from this account that I see is that Noah's salvation was on the basis of faith that resulted in works. It wasn't his faith alone. It wasn't his works alone. But it was on the basis of faith that resulted in works. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of the things not seen as yet, moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house. You see his faith and his works. You see, without faith in what God said, Noah would have had no motivation to build the ark. It would never have been built. However, without the works that resulted from that faith, Noah would have had no ark to enter. The combination, his salvation, was because he had a faith that resulted in works. The last verse of chapter 6 says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded, so did he. You see, without obedience for Noah, there would, no, there would have been no salvation. Yes, he had faith, but he also had obedience. And it was because of that obedience that he was saved. Another observation. No one was born in the ark. The only ones who were in the ark, the only people who were in the ark were those who made a personal decision to enter and entered by their own free will. No one was carried in as a baby. There were no babies that were carried into the ark. No one was in the ark by default, simply by being born there. They were born there, they couldn't help it. That's just where they were. The only way they were there was if they decided to go, that's their faith, and then they went. And that was their works. 
One other observation, and then I'd like to come through and make some applications to these. The last observation, those in the ark were saved that they might multiply. They weren't saved just simply for their own pleasure, their own enjoyment, their own good. They were saved that they might multiply. Chapter 8, verse 17. God speaking to Noah. Well, verse 16. He says, Go forth out of the ark, thou and thy wife, thy sons, and thy sons' wives with thee. This was after the flood. Verse 17, bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And then uh, dropping down to verse, chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now think about it. If Noah and his sons and their wives would not have multiplied, what would the ark have accomplished? Nothing. But it was based on this command of God to replenish the earth and multiply that humanity could continue. And if these people would not have multiplied, there would be no humanity today. Just how significant was this to God? Well, it was significant enough that God chose to record in Scripture an entire chapter detailing the descendants of Noah and his sons. Chapter 10, from the beginning to the end, just simply describes how they fulfilled this command of God to replenish the earth, to be fruitful, and to multiply. You read those verses. And Noah's sons had children of their own. Anywhere from four sons to seven sons, plus I don't know how many daughters. This was significant to God. It records not only Noah's children's children, but their children, the generations to come. If Noah and his sons would not have multiplied, they would not have been fulfilling God's intent and God's purpose for their lives. Okay, let's go back and look at some of these points again. I'd like to make some applications for us. And in doing so, we'll be referring to a number of verses from the New Testament. What is the lesson for us? Remember, I said I would like to emphasize our need for salvation, God's response, His provision to meet that need, and the consequences of our response. Okay, so going back to point one. The outlook of the day was downright dismal. Now we're going to apply this to today. Today, the wickedness around us is great. I don't need to tell you that, and I don't need to go into details. I don't need to describe the wickedness of the day. It's all around. And the wickedness that is around us today means only one thing. The same thing it meant in Noah's day. Destruction is imminent. Destruction is coming. 2 Peter verse, or chapter 3, several verses. But the heavens and the earth are reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in a night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Destruction is imminent. And just as in the day of Noah, 
There is no escape. Apart from the grace of God, there is no way out of this judgment. Several verses from Revelation chapter 6. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And the implication is no one. No one can stand before his wrath. Friend, without the grace of God, you are doomed to destruction. There is no one that can withstand that. You see, just as the people in Noah's day, it, ma it didn't matter what they trusted in. It was not sufficient. It doesn't matter what we trust in. It is not going to bring us salvation. We have no power, no means to escape on our own. Personal determination is not going to do it. You might decide, you know, I know I've got some issues. I've just got to do better. I've got to break that habit. I've got to gain the victory. If I try harder, I think I can do it. I'm, I'm, I'm determined. I'm going to do it. It's not going to work, friend. Destruction is coming. Personal determination will not deliver you from that destruction. Psychology will not work. There are people who say that if you just entertain the right thought processes in your mind and you think the right things and you steer your life in the right direction, you'll be able to get to where you want to go. You can think your way through this. Friend, destruction is coming and psychology is not going to deliver you. Politics will not work. Our politicians say if we can change our society, people will have a better environment and people will change. We cannot change people simply by changing their environment. Politics will not work. Good intentions will not deliver you. Good impressions that you make on other people will not deliver you. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. It doesn't matter how impressed they are. That is not going to deliver you from the judgment that is to come. Popularity is not going to deliver you. The praise of men, having lots of friends, will not deliver you from the judgment of God. Financial success will not deliver you from the judgment that is to come. Financial success did not deliver anyone in the day of Noah. It doesn't matter how much money they offered for a ticket on that ark. When that door was closed, there was no way in. When the judgment comes, none of us will be able to post bond. Financial success will not do it. Achieving personal goals will not deliver you. Winning a volleyball tournament is not going to deliver you. Getting first place trophy in your quiz division is not going to deliver you. It doesn't matter what your, first place, what your goals are, your personal goals. They are not going to deliver you. Ignoring the situation will do nothing to deliver you. Well, I just don't want to think about it. I'll ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. Friend, it will not go away. Judgment is coming. And when the storms of destruction come, every one of these flimsy rafts that we put our trust in are going to go under, and we will go under with them. Well, destruction was coming, but the grace of God saw the need of Noah. Remember I said these two were on a collision course, and the grace of God lifted Noah above that judgment. The coming judgment is real today, and I said it's unavoidable. That is why we need the grace of God. But the grace of God sees your need today.
The grace of God sees you where you are. And the grace of God is just as real today as it was in Noah's day. The grace of God is just available. And you can find grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's the only thing that will lift you up. The grace of God provides deliverance from the judgment of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, or the grace of God, I believe we could say, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace of God saw the need of Noah, and the grace of God saw our need. And he did something about it. You see, the ark was God's precisely designed answer to the need. And when God saw your need, he did something about it. He provided salvation through Christ. Salvation through Christ is God's provision to deliver you from the judgment that is to come. Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, said, Ye must be born again. You must Step into the ark. There are no other options. It is the only way. Christ is the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And just like that ark was designed so specifically to meet the need of the judgment that was to come, the salvation that God provided for us is designed specifically to cleanse us from evil and to deliver us from sin. The blood of Christ was shed for us. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins. But Christ shed his blood. The ark was God's precisely designed need or response to the need. Salvation is God's precisely designed response to our need as well. The next observation Entrance into the ark was based on God's invitation. This morning, God's invitation is extended to everyone that is here, to each one of you. God is saying, come. If you have not yet entered that ark, God's invitation is open. His invitation is open to everyone. Remember I said the ark, admittance to the ark was by invitation only. God's invitation is to Everyone, Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that hears say, come. Let him that is a thirst, come. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. John 3, 16, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Entrance into the ark was based on invitation, but friend, God is inviting you this morning He is standing with arms outstretched, waiting for you. He's not going to compel you. He's not going to pick you up and put you into the ark. He's not going to say, go into the ark. He's saying, come, come into the ark. Will you accept that invitation? Will you come into the ark? It's by invitation. The choice is yours, but there's only one door. There's one way. Jesus is our door. He said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the door, 
And Jesus is the door that leads to life. John 10.10 says, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly, or that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You see, refusing to step through that door is refusing eternal life. Will you choose the door or will you choose the doom? You see, today we have a choice. We have an option. Tomorrow, we may not. Today, the door is open. Jesus is our door. The door leads to life. The next observation, very simple, very basic. Everyone inside was saved. Everyone outside was lost. Either you are in or you are out. It's as simple as that. Like I said, there's no kind of saved. There's no partly saved. There's no somewhat saved. When Jesus said he's going to divide the sheep from the goats, they were on the right hand or on the left. There was not a middle area, no middle ground. I once heard a minister say there are two, group, two groups of people in the world. There are the saints and there are the ain'ts. Either you're in or you're out. You're a saint or you ain't. If you are in, you are saved. Now I can imagine when the floods came and people found themselves outside the ark and the water began to rise, there were cries of despair, screaming. I can imagine people pounding on the side of that ark, yelling for salvation. But at that point, they were on the outside and it was too late. The picture for, the, for us is really no better. Jesus said in one of his lessons, cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the parable of the bridegroom we had in Sunday school just recently, Matthew 25, the bridegroom came, they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. But there were others. Afterward came also the others, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know ye not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Observation number seven. Noah's salvation was on the basis of faith that resulted in works. Today, you will hear people say, just believe, only believe. If you believe, that's enough. That will get you in, you will be saved. Well, James chapter 2 addresses that teaching pretty directly. James in chapter 2 said, Thou believest that there is one God. You believe in God. You believe there is one God. He says, ah, that's pretty good, but guess what? The devils also believe, and they tremble in the presence of God. The implication is, are they saved? No, they're not saved. Just believing alone is not sufficient. When it started raining, all of the mockers in Noah's day believed in rain. Were they saved? No, they were not. James goes on to say, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? You see, believing God but not repenting and not obeying him does not bring salvation. There's the, the works that follow of repentance and obeying God. 
James went on to give two examples. He talked about Abraham being justified by his works when he offered Isaac. Rahab, also justified by works. When she received a messenger, sent him out another way. First they had faith, and their works illustrated their faith. And then his conclusion. He says, you see then how that by works a man is justified, or we could say by obedience, a man is justified and not by faith only. Not simply saying, I believe, but then responding to that belief in obedience to God. We said earlier that there is nothing you can do on your own. But when you respond to faith in God with obedience to God, you will be delivered by God. It's not what we do on our own, but when we respond to faith in God with obedience to God, we will be delivered by God. No one was born in the ark. No one is born a Christian. No one is born saved. It doesn't matter if your parents are saved. It doesn't matter what church you attended from a child up. It doesn't matter what community you live in. You can live in the, in the most famous Anabaptist community there is. That does nothing to bring you personal salvation. No one is a Christian by default. Other religions, maybe. If your parents are Catholic, you maybe were baptized as an infant, you might just be a Catholic by default. If you're born into a Muslim family, you might be considered a Muslim by default. If you're born into an Orthodox family, you're pretty much considered Orthodox by default. Christian by default? No, it does not happen. No one is born a Christian. Secondly, no one becomes a Christian because of the choice of someone else. I mentioned earlier, no one was carried into that ark as a baby. Being baptized as an infant has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. No one is carried into the ark as a baby. Being baptized as an infant would not make you a Christian any more than hanging stars over your crib would turn you into an astronaut. It's a choice that you need to make. It's a decision that you need to make. It's something you need to do on your own. And another aspect here I'd like to emphasize is that no one needs to allow anyone else from, to prevent them from becoming a Christian. Now, I'm letting my mind, my imagination run here a little bit. But Noah had three sons, three brothers. And if they were typical brothers, I suppose that they had some arguments. And maybe even as they grew older, sometimes they disagreed. They had their disagreements. But I find it interesting that if they had disagreements, which more than likely they did, they did not allow those disagreements to separate them or to keep them from making the decision that they knew that was right to make. Just imagine if one of Noah's sons would have said to the other, well, if you're going into that ark, I'm not. Count me out. If you're in, I'm out. What a stupid statement that would have been. It would have been utterly foolish to choose doom just because his brother chose to be saved. Choosing defeat. 
And refusing salvation, refusing to give your life to God simply because you do not see eye to eye with someone who is saved is no less foolish. It's like saying, well, if you're going to be saved, I'm not going to be saved. Is there anything more foolish? Friend, the choice is yours. Will you enter the ark or will you remain outside and face the judgment that is to come? The last observation I made, those in the ark were saved that they might multiply. And I'm not going to make a lot of comment on this. This is a subject of its own. It could, uh, could be an entire sermon. But the point is obvious. If you are in the ark, if you are saved, God has an intention for you. And that intention is to multiply. Now, I'm not going to say that if you do not spread your faith to others, that your salvation is pointless. But I will say that if you do not multiply spiritually, you are not fulfilling God's intention for your life and for your salvation. God's intention is for every one of us to multiply. It's a subject of its own. If you're doing nothing to multiply, I'll just simply say, get with it. In closing, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. I'm going to read some verses here as a closing challenge. These are not my words. These are the words of Jesus. Words that we do well to consider. As you think about whether you are in or whether you are out. Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door... And ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come. In other words, others will come from the east and from the west, from the north, from the south and shall sit down in the, pre in the kingdom of God in his presence. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. We could say there are some that had the opportunity and refused. There were others who were given the opportunity and accepted it. This morning, we have a choice. You have a choice to make. Just going over this account one more time. The world is full of evil. Destruction is imminent. Destruction Judgment is coming, but by the grace of God, an ark of salvation has been provided. And at this moment, the door is open, and the invitation is open. You're invited to enter, and God is saying, come, 
Jesus is waiting with open arms. You're on the inside or you're on the outside, one or the other. And maybe there's someone here this morning that is on the outside, but you have taken steps toward the door and you're peering in, you're looking at salvation and you're considering salvation. You're so close, but you're still on the outside. Don't wait. Step through that door. I know this is not typical for a Sunday morning, but I'd just like to give a few moments of opportunity here. If there's anyone here that is on the outside and would like to step through the door this morning to be on the inside, I want to give you that opportunity. We're just going to pause a few moments, and if you would like to step through the door, I just invite you to stand where you are and someone can meet with you and pray with you. Or maybe you entered the ark, but you realize that, yeah, you expressed belief, but the obedience hasn't been there. You have not repented. You have not turned from your evil. You have not obeyed God. You're not sure that you're really in. And if you would like to make sure this morning, we'll just pause for a moment or two, and if you would like to make sure, I just invite you to stand where you are. Can I have a sister that will volunteer to meet with her and pray with her? Someone raise your hand, please. Thank you. You may be seated. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Is there a brother that would meet with Eli to spend some time in prayer with him? Thank you, Jake. Is there anyone else? If this is you, don't be afraid to talk to someone. Sunday school teacher, a parent, and make it a point to do it soon. Let's kneel for prayer. <clears throat> Father, this morning we thank you for your provision of the ark. Thank you for the door, the access into your provision. I thank you for the invitation to enter. Thank you that you are standing with your arms outstretched and open wide this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit could speak to us, continue to call us. And if there's anyone here this morning that is still on the outside, that your spirit would continue to speak to that person and that we would be sensitive, that we would respond to your spirit in obedience to your call. Lord, we also recognize our responsibility to others to reproduce, to multiply, to share the good news. We just praise you for the salvation you have provided. And I pray that our lives would fulfill your intention for us as we go forth from here. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.